Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Psalm 119, verses 73 through 80, these are the words of God. Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie. But I shall meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, so that I will not be ashamed. As we begin today, um, I have two things that I want to accomplish at the start. The first is that I want to define some terms for you. Uh, A few terms, as a matter of fact. We're going to see uh, that each of these words uh, appear or maybe even reappear throughout our time today. And what my goal is, is that when we hear the word, we will think it's meaning. We hear the word, we think it's meaning. Because uh, I think this is this is common to you or uh, something that you know intuitively, but we often say things and we forget what we mean by what we say. So it's really important to define terms and understand those things. The terms, and there are four of them, are as follows. Fashioned, learn, comfort, and blameless. Fashioned, learn, comfort, and blameless. The second thing that I want to do today is paint a verbal picture for you uh, of God as a good shepherd. God as good shepherd. Uh, Not the stereotypical Sunday school picture either. I want to go deeper. I want to paint with uh, far more vivid colors when we do this. At the end of our time, I do believe that we will step back and we will look on our Savior, on our King, with a clearer, more fleshed out image. This will serve us to understand both David's words in verses 73 through 80, uh, but I think it will also help us in how we interact with God on a daily basis. That is, we will see him more accurately uh, for the God that he is. It can also provide a fuller understanding to last week's message, so if you weren't here, I would encourage you to listen to last week's message. We dealt with affliction. We dealt with the fact that affliction comes uh, in many forms and many ways, but one of those ways is that God causes affliction. So it's a really important premise and understanding to have. So the outline again is define the terms, then we're going to paint an image, and then we're going to dive into each verse to put it all together. So our first term, and the terms will be up on the board, uh, our first term is the word fashioned. It is pronounced in the Hebrew kafafnun. Yeah, isn't that awesome? Why don't you try saying that with me? Kafafnun. Yeah, there you go. I just like watching you say things. Anyway, so kafafnun uh, means to prepare, to make ready, to set up. Uh, and specifically, what I want to focus on today is to establish. This is what we see in the context of Psalm 119. Uh, this indicates, Psalm 119 indicates that the establishing piece here is actually King David over Israel. He was put in place. He was installed as king. Uh, David does say, your hands made me, which most likely is a recognition of God as creator. Uh, We know that God, uh, we know that David is never shy from saying God is his creator. He's repeated this many times. In Psalm 139, 13, he penned that well-known line, you knit me together in my mother's womb. So David recognizes God as creator. Seeing God as creator is both right and good for us, but we have to also see the other word that is used here, and that is that, uh, that God is also the one who establishes us in our lives. God is the one who establishes you in your life. So in any venture, in any situation that you find yourself in, uh, you, need to be, you need to understand that you are submitted to King Jesus some way, okay? So he establishes you. 
Uh, Seeing God as our creator, again, is good, but he as our establisher is going to change a little bit about who we are. The second term is the word learn. This is pronounced lamad, and it means to teach, to be instructed in, and everyone's favorite word, to chastise, right? To chastise. And that's the word that I want you to take home today because it's vitally important. There's no getting around it. Chastise in our world has a negative connotation, but it doesn't have to be the case. To be chastened simply means to be restrained or to have a moderating effect placed upon one's life. All of us are chastened. All of us are chastened every day. According to God's word, since we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I love the present tense of that, fall short of the glory of God, we need this kind of restraint. Can I get an amen? We need this kind of restraint in our life. We are in need of being chastened daily, uh, whether we recognize that or admit that or not. In the Old Covenant, People would establish guardrails. I spoke on this in a daily update a couple of weeks ago. I encourage you to go onto the YouTube channel and find that. But uh, in the Old Testament, people set up guardrails. I I reference Solomon who says, uh, God, don't give me too much that I forget you. And please don't give me too little that I steal and I profane your name. These were guardrails that David or that Solomon wanted to have in his life. But when we fast forward to the New Testament, what we learn is that Jesus himself is our guardrail. He is our chastisement. He's the one who actually strengthens us and keeps us in this place. This is why the scripture tells us we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And you'll notice the, the comparative nature of the context that Paul, when he says, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he's talking about living in want or in plenty. Same thing as Solomon. All of a sudden, David says, Jesus is uh, enabling me to do it. He's enabling me to carry on. Uh, We are, as C.S. Lewis would say, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We were born into sin. How many of you know that? We were born into sin. Although we didn't inherit Adam's guilt, we don't need it. We've done enough of our own (laughs) sinning. Uh, We did inherit Adam's nature. And redemptive history is the story of King Jesus redeeming us uh, from Adam's nature and replacing it with his, right? This is what we're moving towards. But guess what? Transformation of any nature, transformation of any kind, comes through a process of discipline. Transformation of any kind comes through a process of discipline. All transformation does. It's just a fact of life. As a dad, I see that transformation on a daily basis. Uh, There are good days as a dad, and there are bad days as a dad. There are days when your children seem ready to obey, and then there are days when they uh, require the rod of correction right? Because foolishness seems to be deeply embedded in their hearts on those days, but it's still true nonetheless. So I see this all the time. Our Father in heaven is doing the same thing. He's not only teaching us how to train our children or our life, but as a good shepherd, he both talks his talk and walks his walk. The same God who tells us to train up our children in the way, in the way they should go is training us in the way we should go. He is. He's using pastors and teachers, and he's using the church, and he's using brothers and sisters in Christ, iron sharpening iron, but all of this is a part of him doing the very same thing. The same God who tells us not to spare the rod of discipline does not himself spare the rod of discipline. Last week was all about the affliction of God. The same God who points out that foolishness is bound up in the hearts of children uh, reveals to us that foolishness is bound up in our hearts as well. And the same God who shows us how to discipline those children, uh, in the present case, we would use that word chastisement, to drive that foolishness out. God is driving foolishness from our hearts every day. Uh, we, We tend to be a little too prideful, believing that we're, we're better than we are. Um, but God lovingly sets us straight on the humility train and shows us what the truth is. So 
To be fashioned, again, means to be established, and to teach means to be chastised. The third term for us today is the word comfort. It's pronounced niham in the Hebrew, and you have to get that phlegm in there. It's just important. So it means to console, it means to extend compassion, and, and this I love, it means to sigh with one who is grieving. And that, it's that last line, sighing with one who is grieving, that is by far my favorite definition for the word. And it, I'm not just picking definitions that I like. There, there's a Bible out there today that basically gives you a bunch of uh, definitions for words as you read the Bible. And it almost asserts that it's multiple choice, like you can pick whatever word you want. You know that biblical interpretation doesn't work that way, right? <laughs> okay, so you don't get to do that. <laughs> so, but this sigh with one who is grieving is my favorite because uh, it is actually what we see in the context, both in the lexical definition as well as the outplay of the word. Some have even translated this as breathing intensely because of a deep emotion. Breathing intensely because of a deep emotion. Uh, I think that that is a very important picture of comfort when we move forward. Uh, with that image in your mind, it's easy to understand that Niham is not a casual display of sympathy. Uh, nor is it the world's definition or the world's word, which is empathy. This is true biblical sympathy. That's the word that we see in the text of Scripture. In the book of Hebrews, we're introduced to the only word in the New Testament for our concept of sympathy, and there is no word for empathy. Uh, we see it two times, both times, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, and Hebrews 10, 34. The word is really easy to transliterate, right? In the Greek, it is sympatheo. I think we know where we're going with this, right? So sympatheo, and according to its lexical definition and usage, uh, it means to share the same suffering or emotion, to sigh deeply with, to feel for, to have compassion for, or even to pity. Uh, doubtless, this is why David in Psalm 119, verse 77, said, May your compassion come to me that I might live. Compassion, this this. Uh, this sighing with uh, those under affliction is actually where life results. Life, uh, I think we can all agree with this, life is near impossible to live when you feel alone. Life is impossible to live alone, but life is near impossible to live when even you feel alone. Each of us are rejuvenated when we understand that someone is sharing our emotions, sharing our life with us, sharing everything that, that we, need, uh, we need in this life. We, we have emotions, we have thought processes, we have uh, physical touch, we have care. All of those things are things we need people to share with us. We should think about this idea far deeper than I have time for today uh, because it, it's important to all of us and it's something that each of us to some extent should express to be with people, to sigh with them as they are grieving. God's sympatheo, God's sympathy, his sighing with our grief uh, is because he shares our suffering and or he shares our emotion. David uses the Hebrew equivalent, Niham, uh, many times, and one of my favorites is found in the 23rd Psalm. The, the passage is not up on the screen, but I'm sure you're familiar with it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. And this is the framework that is hard for people to understand, but it says your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We live, in a, we live in a strange America, a strange world today, where a rod and a staff can never be viewed as comfort. It's always viewed as abuse. It's always viewed as pain. But David doesn't see it our way. David sees it in a much more beautiful way. Whether he's facing death, whether he's facing affliction, whether he's facing uh, even affliction from his own stupidity, uh, his own sin, God is comforting him. And that comfort, that, uh, that abiding with him, that sighing with him, is actually what brings life. Even uh, in the use of his rod and staff, God is always sharing uh, our suffering and our emotion. Our shepherd walks beside us, church. He throws us on his shoulders at times. 
whether it's out of a disciplinary action or whether it's out of a protective uh, action. We are too weak maybe to carry on. He throws us on his shoulder. There's never a moment when he doesn't stop sighing with us in our grief. That to me is comforting. That is comforting because that's the definition of the word. The final term that I have for you is the word blameless. Uh, This is pronounced tamim, and it means unscathed, intact, without fault, free of blemish, impeccable, honest, devout. It is what governs the character trait that we refer to as integrity. This is the same word in the Hebrew. Uh, And for our time today, I want to talk about the meaning of complete because contextually that's what we're dealing with. The term here, uh, complete, speaks more to the idea of maturity than it does uh, attaining some sort of sinless perfection or a sinlessness. Uh, that, that is still... That is still an aim of God. He is driving out sin from our life. We sang a song about it already. Uh, we, are, we are moving towards righteousness and holiness and godliness. But this word actually is all about maturity, all about being complete in everything. Completeness is the result of God, what God is doing through our sanctifying uh, process or the sanctification process. Uh, we are God's image bearers. God is blameless. So what does he want us to be? Blameless. He wants us to reflect that image. What does blameless mean? Complete. God wants us to reflect completeness. Church, this has to do with maturity. It has to do with, uh, it has to do with patience, love, joy, all of those fruit that are a part of the Christian life, uh, of the life redeemed by King Jesus. This is true in a declarative sense that we're blameless or that we're complete, uh, as well as in a behavioral sense. God has declared that we are complete when he declares us to be righteous, when he declares us to be loved, when he declares us to be blameless through the blood of Christ. Uh, But he still expects us vital truth, he still expects us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him in every way. Every day of our life, we are to be complete in him and to express that. So one last time, just for all those terms, to be fashioned means to be established, to teach means to be chastened, to have guidelines put on us, and that through King Jesus. Comfort means to sigh with one who is grieving, and blameless means to be complete. Okay, now it's time to paint this image of God that I mentioned before. An image that is both of God as shepherd, as disciplinarian, but God as good in both, because he is truly good in both when we see God's, uh, when we see uh, God, how David described him, when we get that picture, uh, we should be dumbfounded as to why other images of God even exist in our world. It's not that we can't understand how immature views produce out-of-context renderings of God or how out-of-context renderings produce immature views of God, whatever it may be, uh, but we won't be able to accept those views of God any longer. Because when you see God the way the scripture says he is, you cannot keep sticking your head in the sand and believing he's one way. You cannot just hold to your tradition and your ideas. You have to take the word for what it says. In the end, the scriptures are what guide us, not our opinions. It would be awesome if we can get our opinions on board with the scripture. So what we have to do to do that is surrender each and every day. The first brushstroke of this image within this painting uh, is God as both our creator and the one who establishes us. From the beginning, God made men and women in his image to reflect his glory into the world. He made us to be fruitful, to multiply, to rule over all that he had made. He didn't make us to do, to do that ruling and reigning equally, but he made us to rule and reign over all that he made. 
In establishing us for this purpose, he actually made us as priests in some sense in the temple that was Eden. He made us as kings and queens in the kingdom, which is his world. Uh, Just like David, God created us and then God establishes us. He says, you have a responsibility to rule and reign. When we think about the scripture telling us that we fell short of the glory of God, there are manifold understandings to what this is, but we definitely fell short of ruling and reigning. We definitely fell short of our mandate, our call to be kings and priests, queens in this world. That's what we're supposed to do. Whatever our distinct role is, is a different question. But what we're supposed to do, we fell short of that glory. We're not reflecting the king of the universe. So he also intended, so there's the first piece, he's the establisher. He also intended to intended to give us understanding for the particular task that we've been called to, which is why the second brushstroke is that of teacher. God is a teacher, but he's not that teacher that's smacking you on the hand with the ruler or the yardstick from three feet away, right? He, he, he loves you. He knows how to teach. He knows how to guide you into right living. He knows how to guide you into right thinking. He is not opposed to the rod of correction. I'm simply saying he's just not abusive. He's not just flailing about all the time. He is a teacher. It's implied that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And I love this idea of walking with God. I have always loved this idea of walking with God, probably because as a child, I would walk with my dad. We would be in the garage. We would do things. There was a, there was a peace in that, knowing that I was learning as I was going. That's the way discipleship is actually intended to work. We should be inviting people and, uh, you know, anybody and everybody that wants to know about Jesus, wants to find out more, wants to follow him. We should be inviting them to follow us as we follow Christ. We should ask them to imitate us as we imitate Christ. There's nothing uh, obviously non-biblical about that. It's clearly what Paul said. So uh, I... I wonder sometimes if during those walkabouts that God pointed everything out to Adam, teaching him what to eat, what not to eat, what to name, what to do. I kind of think it was. I think that's a cool uh, way of looking at that. It's just an opinion. But God has always been in the business of teaching his progeny, his children, uh, how to rule and to reign. So much so that David doesn't hesitate to ask for this level of teaching. He confidently calls on God to teach him. You established me for a purpose, now help. (laughs) You established me for a purpose, show me what it is that I'm supposed to do. If we're going to walk in our established position as image bearers, then we need to learn. We need to be chastened. We need to have those parameters put on our life. And thank goodness, uh, God is that teacher for us. The third brushstroke has a few blended colors to it. God is both a righteous judge and one who faithfully afflicts. God is a righteous judge and he is one who faithfully afflicts. You cannot take comfort in the latter. Hear me out, church. You cannot take comfort in the latter if you do not profoundly rest in the former. What do I mean by that? If God is not a righteous judge, if God is not perfect in his assessments and his follow-through in our lives, then we will never see him as faithful in discipline. We will never understand Paul's words. You were faithful in affliction. How? How is that possible? Because he's good, church. Because he's right in all things. We will only ever see God as harsh We will only ever see God's discipline as severe, but it is not. It is faithful, faithful, Uh, kind of like what the proverb says when it says faithful are the wounds of a friend uh, or the words of a friend, the wounds that are caused by that. This is really important. We need that kind of faithfulness in our life. This wrong view will either cause us to run from God right? If he's, just, if he's just some megalomaniac, he's just constantly trying to put us under the thumb, that we'll, it'll cause us to run from God uh, on one hand, or we'll end up creating false gods that don't actually exist, 
right? These are gods who never discipline us. This is the my Jesus approach. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, well, my Jesus, you've ever heard that? Yeah, it sounds something like this. Well, my Jesus would never send anybody to hell. Well, I don't know who your Jesus is, but that's not the Jesus. Or my Jesus says love is love. <laughs> I really don't know what Jesus you're following. It's nothing but an idol created in one's own imagination. The next and final brushstroke is, at least for today, is to see God as present, present with us. And I'm not talking just modern pop psychology here. I'm talking about something deeply rooted in the scriptures. One who is truly with us and for us in our shaping and in our reshaping. This is who God is. As a comforter, God does not leave his sheep uh, beaten, bruised, bleeding in the pasture, right? That's, that's not what he's doing. Instead, with each blow, with each affliction, because those things are real and they come, uh, even those afflictions that are caused by our blatant disobedience in God, uh, our shepherd is sighing alongside us in grief. God knows how much sin hurts, church. This is why he's willing to die for it. He knows the pain it causes. He knows the end result of it. And this is why he wants you out of this. He is drawing you out of this. Our shepherd is sighing along with us in our grief. He's either sharing in our suffering or he's sharing in our emotions. And there are times, as we see with David, when there's the affliction coming from without or lies being perpetrated from without, uh, that God, I believe, shares in both. He shares our emotion and he shares our suffering. Uh, we need to remember, church, that we are the object of a good shepherd's affection. He is the one who is willing to leave the 99 and go after those who have gone astray. Is that a beautiful picture? He's, he's willing to leave and go after the one who has gone astray. He is a good shepherd who wants to walk with us again in the cool of the day, just as he once did with Adam. So how do we walk with him? Submission to King Jesus. When we walk with him, we, when we walk with our Savior, we are walking with the Father. Okay, so uh, now that we've defined some terms uh, let's, uh, and established that image, let's jump into each verse. Psalm 119, verse 73. Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. As God's established king, David uh, specifically asks for understanding to learn God's commandments. Now, track with me here because we're talking order here. Understanding that to learn how God's law uh, chastens him, he needs understanding to get there. On the surface, this actually seems like a strange idea. Uh, I mean, doesn't learning come from understanding? Doesn't it work the opposite way? Uh, sure, in some sense, but this is a well-known order that is found in the scripture. Even in life, this is a well-known order. Consider the basic understanding of a child. Uh, a child must already have in place uh, some level of understanding before they can move forward, right? So if you have a preschooler, they, they need that understanding before they move on to kindergarten. The nursery-level understanding that we have uh, as children is merely the first domino that falls within the line of educational uh, truths that eventually result in our maturity. That's the, how many of you know that when you went to school, you were supposed to progress from year to year? How many of you just didn't do it? <laughs> anyway, okay. How many of you repeated the, the third grade 16 times? Anyway, okay, so we're, we're supposed to be moving on to maturity. Our first step as the sheep of God's pasture is to revere him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, church, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There's a couple ways to look at that. There, you, can, you can read this and say that knowing God leads to understanding, or you can read it and say the base of knowledge of the Holy One is what leads to understanding. Okay, so that, that's Proverbs 9, 10. In that reverence, our second step is to ask for wisdom and understanding with the same confident expectation that David did. 
So David just goes to God and he says, I, I need you to give me understanding. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you. It might. No, it will be given to you because God is what? Teacher. He's the one who established you in order to establish you and have you succeed in the work. He's got to teach you what it looks like, and he is a teacher, and he will teach you. There is not a doubt or shouldn't be a doubt in our mind. Finally, our newfound understanding enables us to learn God's commandments and to see the beauty of their constraining power. So the the word of God, the law of God to David is supposedly beautiful. It's supposedly a joy to him. I talk to Christians all the time, and their response is, it seems oppressive. Here's why it's oppressive. It's either oppressive because you're in deep rebellion against our king, or, or you lack understanding to see how these truths are meant to constrain us. God's word is good, church. It is good, church. And so when we see it, we start to gain a better understanding. We start to know how God wants us to live and why he wants us to live that way. What David seems to be asking here is actually an application question. Lord, give me understanding. This is just my way of rendering David's words. Lord, give me understanding so that I know how your commandments play out. So I can understand why you say do this and don't do that. How many of you enjoy knowing the why about things in life? Well, God is not opposed to you knowing the why. There are times, just like with any father, where, uh, where the statement is always going to be, just do what I say. <laughs> I, I'm not getting enough amens on that one, right? There's, there are times when we just have to do what our father says, but the nature of our king is to explain to us. Because why? Again, he's a teacher. That's what he does. So uh, godly restraint is a product of understanding, but we have to seek understanding. We have to have to do so with a humble heart, but asking why is something you can do in this way. I, I referenced school just a second ago, but This isn't unlike a preschooler who willingly obeys, so keep this in your mind, a preschooler who's obedient. Okay, so a preschool, okay, preschooler who willingly obeys, I, my, my children do this, but anyway, so preschooler who willingly obeys his teacher, uh, but still desires greater understanding. That was definitely me when I was a kid. Why, 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 why? That's me at 41 years old too. So anyway, so y- you, you see a kid who still wants to know why. So let's say the teacher tells the child to trace their ABCs. Uh, It is perfectly within obedience for that child to want to understand what letters are for, to understand what they create, words, to understand why they're important. None of that is rebellion, okay? So remember this in your walk with God. There, There is something you've been established for. There is teaching that God wants to give to you, and you can be obedient, you can trust him, and still say, I don't get it. I need help, Lord. I need you to tell me why I should do this or that. He's not put off by us. David was ready and willing to obey God's word, but he also had a humble curiosity, a desire uh, to understand the whys and the hows of God's word. This is my opinion, but I think uh, that David needed the why question answered so that he could obey God with his whole heart. I think the why question is what enables us, even biblically, I'll I'll show it to you just in a second, but I believe it is what enables us to obey God with our whole heart. If we couple verse 73 of Psalm 119, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments, with Psalm 119 verse 34, which says, give me understanding that I may observe your law, that's learn your commandments or observe your law and keep it with all my heart. So we've got learning, we've got doing, and we've got the motivation in doing, the quality of doing with all of our heart. I think I can prove my opinion to be more than just an opinion. I think it's informed here. According to these two verses, understanding enables both the act of obedience as well as the heart condition behind it, the wholeness of our heart. So ask God the why question all you want, church. He, he, again, is not put off by our questions. Uh, 
So with the picture that we painted earlier, can David ask to be taught with any assurance whatsoever? Can he, church? Can he ask with great assurance? Can he ask with absolute knowledge that God will teach those who ask? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Okay, verse 74. May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. There's really not much to say here other than that people who fear the Lord are genuinely glad when they see others, in this case their king, which is, you're right, David, waiting on God's word. To wait on God's word, meaning to trust it, to take it for your cues in life. This is encouraging to all those who fear God's word or God himself. This is a truth that should motivate each and every one of us. As Christians, we should want to encourage others in any way that we can. And the most simple way possible is for us to live a life waiting on the Lord. If you will wait on the Lord, those who fear him will be encouraged. If you wait on the Lord, those who fear him will be motivated to move forward to do the same and to obey him in every way. I was uh, having this conversation with Steph this week and we were talking about this whole idea and she said this line and I think it's really good. It's a good summation of everything. A faithful life will always serve as an example to those who fear the Lord. A faithful life will always serve as an example to those who fear the Lord. So guess what? Be an example. Live a faithful life. Do what God says. Trust in his word. It's amazing. Okay, verses 75 through 77. I'm bringing all of this to a close, church. 75 through 77 again says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Who afflicted David again? You're not saying it loud enough. God did. God did. In faithfulness, you afflicted me. Don't forget the quality of the affliction. Faithfulness. But it is still God, nonetheless. Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word, uh, according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. You will only say those words if you understand. You will only say those words if you understand uh, the, the beauty of what God is saying. And he'll give you that understanding. You just have to call out for it. I've blocked these three verses together because they really shouldn't be analyzed separately. Don't forget, the Bible doesn't originally come with chapter and verse numbers, right? So they shouldn't be analyzed separately. There's a thought here. Um, it's not that we wouldn't stumble onto the correct understanding. It's just unlikely. In verse 75, we see righteous judgment and faithful affliction. Righteous judgment and faithful affliction. In verse 76, we see a petition for God's loving kindness to comfort in that affliction. Why would David ever ask if he thought God was just wanting to punish him? If he believed God to be the way some, not many I would say, but some in today's church do, just this gruff, hard nose, if, if that's the only part of God that we see, which is not, right? And you can take it up with the Bible, not with Nathan. If that's the only side we see, what business does David have petitioning God to uh, show him comfort, to sigh with him in his grief when he goes through affliction? He shouldn't even ask that question. God's just going to afflict him and deal with it. Verse 77, we see that the result of God's comfort when it comes is life. Because again, what I said before is that when you know that somebody is sharing uh, emotions in life with you, and how much more the creator of the universe, when you understand they're sharing this with you, sighing with you in grief, you come alive. You have peace that moves you forward. Any of these verses in isolation, and we don't see uh, that the complete picture of our good shepherd. We might see uh, we might see a, uh, a rough God. We might see just this flowery, fluffy God. But neither of those to their extremes is what we're talking about. So when we connect all of these brushstrokes, we actually have a, a more coherent beauty. This is, this is a good shepherd. In last week's message, we learned that even God causes affliction at times. But no matter how affliction comes, 
David never had a harsh view of God. He always saw him as a good shepherd. Why would David, again, ask for comfort if it's not the case? He, he asks because he knows the nature of God. Psalm 34, verses 15 through 19. It's not on the screen, uh, but it, is, it so captures this idea. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. How are we made righteous, church? In Jesus. So we are righteous according to God, right? And that also means his eyes are toward us. Wow, that's amazing. That means when you ask him, he's paying attention, <laughs> right? Like, this is, I struggle with this as a dad. I've got to make sure that I'm paying attention. God is at all times, even with the 8 billion creatures he's got running around asking why, 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 why all the time, okay? So he is, he is present. But Psalm 34 goes on. The eyes, of the, Lord are, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers, amen, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Wah, wah. Okay, right? That's, that's important. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now look at this next line. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many are our afflictions, and where they come from, many, many sources. But those afflictions, we have nothing to worry about because the Lord delivers us out of all of them. The way he practically delivers us, church, is through teaching us, through chastising us, through, through giving us constraints, through sighing with us in the valley, but he's leading us out through his rod and his staff. Powerful ideas. This was David's good shepherd. This is to be our good shepherd, the one who created us, established us, sighs alongside us, and is always there to teach us. Okay, verse 78. I'm rounding it out, guys. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on your precepts. I want some attention here on these verses, or on this verse and on its understanding. Because this really goes in the face of post-modernity, okay? David's understanding of God, uh, as we just heard in Psalm 34, was uh, of a God whose face is against evil, those evildoers. This clearly informs what we see in verse 78, right? Again, what does 78 say? May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie. I love that David doesn't sound like our postmodern world here. There's no foolish notion that, well, nobody can really know who's ever in the right or the wrong. Um, I don't know. Maybe I did wrong. Maybe they did wrong. Whatever. It'll all come out in the wash. He's not this wishy-washy idiot, okay? He's just straightforward. He's like, there's evildoers, there's arrogant people, and they should be ashamed. And God, I want you to do that. Thank you. <laughs> right? I, I love this. David recognized when arrogant were attacking. He acknowledges when lies were being perpetrated against him. David recognized when he was the one in need of justice. And so can we, church. This doesn't make us arrogant in ourselves. This drives me batty. The scripture talks about uh, recognizing the log in your own eye. How many of you know that, right? Keep reading. It, it tells you to recognize, it tells you to reflect on the log in your own eye and to remove it so that you can perform twig surgery on your brother or your sister because, because guess what? You can see twigs in people's eyes. You can see sin. You can see when your child has foolishness bound up in their heart at 9 a.m., you know what's happening, because why? We are known by our fruit, church. We are known by the things we produce. That doesn't mean that every bad fruit that we're producing, like momentary sinful behavior, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden we've lost something with God. I'm not suggesting that. But in that case, we have to receive the faithful affliction of our good shepherd, because he's driving the foolishness out of us. 
He's driving it out of us. So we need to understand this. This doesn't, uh, just because we recognize these things, again, it doesn't make us arrogant. We don't have to approach every painful situation in life with some expression of false humility, which is really just pride, okay? False humility is just some reversed, weird, disguised pride. Saying things like, well, maybe we're both in the wrong, or maybe it's pride to think that I'm in the right here. If absolute right and wrong didn't exist, we can't have a justice system. Did you know that? <laughs> if absolute, this is, uh, we can throw this into the world's camp too, <laughs> right? The, the uh, you know, the, the paraders of postmodern thought, they have to realize this. There's no point in a justice system. There's no point in arguing over who the next Supreme Court justice is if there's no way to know what's right or wrong. Or if we're all trapped in this world that says, don't judge me. Oh, I hate that world. <laughs> judge me all you want. Please judge me faithfully. Please judge me according to God's word. Please don't rush to judgment against me. But I want to follow my king. So I want my brother or sister in Christ to say, I think that's off. I think you're wrong. I think what God says is. And I want to wrestle with that with fellow Christians. I want you to judge me. David was okay with this. He could spot right and he could spot wrong. And he pointed it out. So let's look again at David's response. Did he change course because people uh, spread lies about him? Did he change course when people spread lies about him? Not at all. Did he just sit and sulk? <laughs> no. All you guys out there moping, crying in your beer as I like to say, stop it. Okay, next one. Did he try to execute that justice himself? No, he didn't. Darn it. <laughs> I really wanted just an example here, David, right? Did he trust his good shepherd to look back to God's word with understanding to learn how he can stay the course in godliness? Emphatic yes. Emphatic yes. He says, Lord, you deal with the arrogant. I'm looking at your word. You deal with the arrogant. I'm, I'm huddling up under the shadow of your wing. We... we uh, need to have the right view of God. And when we do, I think we'll do the same as David. We won't be looking for vengeance or revenge in our lives. Verse 79, may those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. David is simply imploring God to restore the people's allegiance to him. There, there are so many times, church, when our, um, when our sins when they are revealed and when they are disciplined and when they are corrected, it often leads in today's world, it often leads into a mindset of uh, you can never be redeemed now. You have a scarlet letter, you're tainted for good, I'm sorry, but we can't, we can't operate with you. But when you read the New Testament, what you see is even some of the most vile, repulsive sins, at least to us, uh, the Apostle Paul restores that person back restores that person. This should be our aim. Listen, if God the Father, if the, um, let me rephrase that, if, if the Father in the prodigal son story, which is representative of God the Father, if the, if the Father in the prodigal son story reinstates the younger brother, but we live a life where we hold it against the younger brother who returns and we won't allow them to be reinstated, we're the older brother. We're not being like the Father at that point. So restoration has always been the goal, right? It is amazing that David's view of God was such that in knowing who established him, knowing who chastened him, knowing who was sighing with him, he could also ask God for restoration of something that maybe he doesn't deserve. It's grace. Restore their allegiance to me, Lord. I might not deserve it, but I want it. And God says, okay. God says, okay. David sees God as uh, good shepherd. Last verse. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. May my heart be blameless. What does blameless mean again, church? Complete. May my heart be complete in your statutes. This is full understanding, church. This is understanding what God is saying and why he's saying it. And when we get there, by the way, that's the greatest cry ever. I don't know what that was just, 
I'm like, there is a small mouse or a bird in here, and I love it. Okay, okay. So, um, so restoration, or uh, not restoration, completeness is God's aim for us. And he does that through our maturing process. It's clear that David believed that when he reached maturity and completeness, he would walk without shame. Think, just think about this for a second. How many of you struggle with shame in your life? Something in your past, you say, oh, this is unbelievable. Okay, how many of you tried to like talk yourself out of it in the mirror? How many of you have tried to read a book and just, okay, this is going to tell me positive affirmations can get me out of this? How many of you follow gurus who are supposedly supposed to help you get out of this nonsense? No. What the Bible actually says is that our heart, uh, that our heart will be complete in God's statutes, and in that, we won't experience shame. So, so how do we rid ourselves of shame? Statutes of God. We grow and become complete in what he says. When we know this, the full picture of God becomes very clear to us. We see it better than we've ever seen before. We have a God who afflicts us faithfully. He is just and righteous. And we also have a God who sighs with us. There are times when the Father's shepherd's staff, when the Father's staff is meant to wound and afflict you, and it hurts But remember this, after it is done, he holds you and sighs with you in that grief because the end is that you would look like him. He's not just beating you. (laughs) And he's not just telling you attaboy. Both of these are wrong to their extremes. What it is, is God as a shepherd coming with you. We have a perfect verse for this truth in the New Testament. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we are in the shepherd's care. We have to believe this, though. We have to trust this. So here's how we wrap it up. If we put all of this together, church, I believe that we would see, especially in our own lives, a God who is both disciplinarian Again, chastening us, using the rod of correction, and a shepherd who cares for his sheep so much that he sighs with us. The scripture talks of this in so many instances. I'm reminded of the story in Job, or the line in Job, when Job says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in the Lord. Though he slay me, I will hope in the Lord. Only when you understand what is meant by him slaying you, him chastising you, him teaching you, him disciplining you, him establishing you, will you say, although he does this, I'll hope in him. I'll rest in him. He's got me firmly in his hand. So remember, church, we have affliction from our God. It's faithful, it's just, it's good, it's right. But we also have a God who leans on that staff and that rod and sighs with us in our brokenness to bring us out into holiness and into righteousness. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.